Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. Well, family, what about Jonah? <laughs> what about Jonah? We are still here. Six weeks in, I mean, you're like, there's only four chapters. When's this guy going to stop? Like, um, but li- seriously, we're still talking about this fishy tale, and this morning will be the last, I promise you. But I, like, it's done some work in me um, and on me, and I've got to share that with you, the way in which God's wrestled with me over the last several months. Um, I want to bring you into some of that this morning. Um, but before we do, um, let me say there's a number of ways we could wrap it up. Um, and commentators and scholars, pastors, have taken their various angles and perspectives on Jonah throughout history. And of course, you have, in my opinion, um, a few sort of simple ways to sum it up. Um, some people would say, you know, this is really a story, um, and in case you're joining us late in the game, a story of a prophet who runs away and then wants to run away so bad he gets thrown overboard on a ship and then sinks down into the waters, deep, deep to the bottom of the sea, and then a fish eats him, swallows him up whole, and then Jonah the prophet wrestles with God from the belly of the fish, and finally gets spat out upon the shore, and then takes another command from God, a challenge to go again to Nineveh, and to say his words to those people. And when he does, despite his skepticism and reluctance, the city in mass entirely repents. Revival breaks out. And the whole thing is turned upside down, overthrown, if you will, turned around. And Jonah can't handle it. He literally can't stomach it, that God would show compassion upon these people. And so he wrestles with God, fighting and crying with him about first his decision with the people of Nineveh and then about a plant and then about a worm and all these things that God sort of appoints to get through to Jonah, his message of greatness and compassion. And so we could just say then, well, this is simply a matter of sovereignty and morality. God appoints everything in this book. He's in charge. And the lesson for us is we must obey. Let's do the right thing. Jonah does the wrong thing. Nineveh, of course, corrects their ways to do the right things. This is, a, this is a story about God's control and our command to submit to it. You could say, of course, that this is the grand story of revival. Like, incredible repentance happens in this book. This is the story of spiritual renewal. And what we need to do, of course, is preach harder sermons on judgment like Jonah does. (laughs) And then maybe God's people would see his incredible standards and power and they would turn and we could bring renewal if we would just proclaim the judgment and salvation of God and bring about revival. Or you could say, of course, that this is, of course, the litmus test that science doesn't agree with the Bible. I mean, a guy being swallowed by a fish? Like, this is as mythical as it gets. Doesn't this seriously disprove that we can't trust this book? That all it is is a fairy tale? Maybe you've wondered that. 
in all honesty, um, there's been, there's been scholars that have gone down the, like into the far, far weeds looking at types of fish throughout history and sizes of stomachs. And listen, like people go way, way, way down the road. If you, if you want my opinion, I think the more miraculous fact of this story is that 120,000 people turn rather than a guy makes it alive out of a fish. That, I mean, I work with people. All right, one person kind of moving their life around is a big deal. 120,000, like, come on. That's miraculous. But listen, I think what we see is a true prophet in Jonah. And I'll speak some more about that later, but a true prophet who has something to say. And for you and me this morning, I think God has something to say if we'll listen. Um, And... As we conclude this book, what I want to do is look at four lessons. Four lessons in compassion from the life of Jonah. And they kind of all center around this question, how does God go to work? If God wants something done, how does God go to work? And so this morning we'll look at these four. um, And let's jump right into it with number one. I think what I'm going to do is maybe at certain points withhold the the lesson, as I describe it a little bit, and then you'll see it come up on on the screen, and then at other points, maybe I'll just say it outright. I don't know. We'll see. Um, But here we are. The first lesson you and I must learn when it comes to how God goes to work has to do with understanding who we are and who God is. If you reflect on this story, you see that Jonah pretty clearly is not so heroic, I mean, if you just take in the way he runs from God's assignment for him and the way that he, you know, flails and fights at the end, right? But look at me. Let's just start with the first scene where kind of this becomes apparent. He runs from God, and then I think we've got a verse on the screen describing the way he's sleeping in the boat, okay? <laughs> it says, um, let's see. So the captain came down and said to him, he had, Jonah had laid down in the ship and was fast asleep. There's a storm raging around, threatening to, you know, turn over the ship. And Jonah's sleeping. He says, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise and call out to your God. Of course, Jonah doesn't want to call out to his God because he's running from his God. But perhaps God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So from Jonah sleeping in the storm, to him being thrown overboard, which is really not his heroic sacrifice. It's him trying to escape again. He's like, maybe I can beat this by just dying. Throw me in. There's no way I can escape the depth of the sea. Or if you think about the air of superiority in his prayer, he's got this kind of pious prayer that resolves with this wonderful statement that idol worshipers don't pay attention to God, but I will, I will keep my vows. I will repay. He sets himself apart. And if it's not the air of superiority, maybe it's the, the stench that you can kind of smell of racism in chapter 3. When he looks upon the people of Nineveh with complete disgust, they are no longer human as he is. Or perhaps it's the tantrums of chapter four where Jonah's flailing around crying to God about, you know, plants that wither and worms that eat them. Jonah is not heroic in any fashion, yet somehow the work of the Lord gets done. Somehow it gets done. You know, there's, there's um, a distinction here 
And part of what I'm drawn to so much by Jonah, and I hope maybe you are as well, is he's so human. Like he's so full of mistakes. He's so full of um, really some emotional mess. He's full of bravado and then full of sort of pity. He's just all over the map. He's human. And I, I think one of the greatest disservices the church has done is taken a lot of the characters in this book and made them into heroes when they're really just human like you and me. And you see this with Jonah, that he is in every way a creature, and God is the creator. It's evident in this book. I mean, you see it that Jonah buys a fare to go on a boat. He pays his ticket. Yet God's the one who made the sea and the dry land and everything around him, right? You see Jonah as the one who drifts into the depths of the sea. He's as good as dead. But then God reaches down and gives him new life, and he's swallowed by a fish eventually spat out to go do more ministry. And you see Jonah sort of say a few words to the Ninevites. His sermon is only five words in Hebrew, seven in English. That's all we get, right? A few words, and he's totally assuming they'll fall on deaf ears. But when God speaks in this book, everything obeys. God speaks, and everything within creation does exactly as he asks, except for Jonah, you see, him, you see him throughout the book hinting that God is primary. And even in a story that he's written about himself, God is primary in it. So I think the lesson number one that we learn from this story as you look at Jonah is clearly this. Jonah shows us that more of God and less of us is always a winning combination. More of God and less of us is always a winning combination. This is one of the things my mentor used to silently, you know, kind of repeatedly chip into my ears, of course, because I wanted to do so much. I've always wanted to do much for God and for his kingdom. And, and he's like, listen, listen, more of God and less of you always works better. In Jonah's case in point, when God is big and Jonah seemingly brings nothing to the table, there's just, there's just not a lot, not a lot that, that, that God can do when Jonah's trying to take control of it all. But God rewrites the story. God shows himself big and worthy in this picture. But I'm wondering for you, do you believe this? Like, do you believe that a God making a big splash and you perhaps being in a lesser role is the way to life and to happiness? Or do you mitigate? Do you protect yourself? Do you run all the angles and scenarios? Do you work your way away so that there's no, per, no chance that God needs to show up? I wonder if there's a, an area in your life where you're still trying to play the role of the one in control, appointing things here, there, and everywhere when God is the one who plays that spot. Now listen, Jonah is such a clear picture for us that, that God is the creator and he is a creature. I think Nineveh is case in point for this because he rolls up on Nineveh. Jonah finally gets to the city. He's reluctant to say anything, but he starts opening his mouth, smelling a little bit like fish vomit, right? But he's there and he's about to say some things and look at the odds. I mean, you've got one man of God against 120,000 people known for brutally killing the, their enemies and subjugating all the peoples around them. It's, it's not good odds. Like it's one man against the world. And he comes in there and starts saying a few things which the story tells us are 
not his words, but the word of the Lord. And the people respond. 120,000 of them put on sackcloth, ashes, bow down, worship the Lord and pray, pleading for forgiveness. I mean, if you just look at Jonah's sermon, is about five words, and the king of Nineveh actually gets more wordage. Like the king of Nineveh, his response is to issue a proclamation to all of the people for them to pray and to fast and to seek the Lord. And he gets more ink in this story than Jonah does. More of God, less of us, is a winning combination. I think one of my favorite stories in the Bible of this dynamic is the feeding of the 5,000 from Jesus's ministry. Maybe you remember that story. If not, I'll tell it to you. There's um, a crowd that's gathered and Jesus is teaching them from the hillside. And there's, I mean, 5,000 men, the count says. So there's more women and children in the area. And Jesus turns to his disciples. He's like, hey, let's feed them. And they're like, what? Like, can we go buy bread? Like, the town's far away. And then finally, this, this little boy comes up and he goes, hey, I, I have some sardines and I have a few saltine crackers. Like, do, do you think that will do? And Jesus just looks at him, smiles and says, that's enough. And he does his thing and he takes the crumbs of a little boy and he feeds 5,000 and more. How often in your life, I know this is true for mine and for, especially for my ministry, where I've offered crumbs, the best that I can muster, and all of a sudden it's fed people. More of God, less of us, is a winning combination. Friends, God is primary, but please hear me this morning. God being primary is so essential for your life, but that does not mean, and Jonah is not saying, because the Bible won't let us elsewhere, He's not saying that you should be selfless. You should be without self, that there should be no you and the work of God would go better. That is not what he's saying at all, okay? Our second lesson, I think, shows us more of how God chooses to work when he goes to work. Laura and I were driving in the car the other day and um, I, I did it. Like, I found the most awkward place in all of Minnesota, I, I, like, it's amazing. And you want to know what it is? It's a four-way stop. It is the most awkward place in all of Minnesota because you roll up there and then somebody else is the same time and you're like, I'll be nice, you'll be nice, we'll be nice. Okay, now we're both mad. Like, and somebody's driving away speedily. Like, it is the weirdest scenario where you're like, ah, 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 oh, okay. That doesn't happen elsewhere in the country. <laughs> That's a Minnesota thing. It is the spot where you're like, go ahead, go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, uh, okay. Listen, friends, there, there's something funny about that. I, think, I thought it was hilarious when, when it happened to us again. Um, but it kind of describes that, like, that same moment when you know something needs to be done, but your posture is like, go ahead, you can take it. You see, perhaps, that, like, someone should really help another person with something. And you're like, you know what? I think someone else will go and handle that first. Or perhaps you go, you know, somebody should really talk with them about that. And you're like, okay, God, so bring somebody else into their life to talk with them. Or 
Maybe you're like, ah, dang, I wish our church could just do that better. And you're like, ah, somebody will figure it. Somebody will, somebody will go first. And I can't tell you how many times that I've done that in life and in ministry where I'm like, oh, oh God, you, you, want, you want me to go. Like, it's, it's my turn at the stop sign. Like, the, the reason the work's not going forward, the reason that person's not getting help, the reason that person is not being talked to about this or that is because I'm standing at the stop sign just waiting for the Lord to bring somebody else to come through. I'm sort of stuttering there when God has said that I want to work through you, not around you. The lesson of Jonah that we have to learn, friends, is that the way God works in the world the way he chooses to work is not to go around us, but in many ways, many cases, to go through us. He's not standing up there saying, listen, you, if you could just sort of get out the way, then I would have a better chance of working here. No, like, he's saying, if you would actually see you are my way, you are the one through whom I am desiring to do work in the world. God desires so much to work through you. You're not an obstacle. You are not the problem. Yes, you have your issues, and so do I have mine. But God wants to work through you, family, not go around you. And I, there's so many pious preachers who would say, if I could just get out the way, and if the Lord would speak, and, and if he would be in my body, and great, yes, we want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But God wants to use you, and God wants to use me. And God used Jonah. I mean, isn't that the oddest thing about this story? Like, you think God could have found somebody else. He's got all creation at his disposal. And he's like, Jonah, he's our man. He's our man. I mean, I, if, he if he jumped overboard, I wouldn't have had a fish spit him out and say, hey, why don't you try again? I wouldn't have done that. It is the oddest thing. Look at verse one of chapter three. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time and said, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. The second time. God is such a God of second chances, second appointments, second callings. And then look at, look at verse four, or look three and four in chapter four. You get his response to it again. You get... Therefore now, O Lord, take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord answered him and said, do you do well to be angry? Even his second chance, Jonah's still flailing around. I don't understand why he would choose him again. But he does. And the miraculous thing is God still wants to work through Jonah all the way to the end of this story. I mean, if you think about it, Jonah's impact is not just limited to 120,000 Ninevites. We're reading his story today. It's still impacting people and bringing about spiritual encouragement and renewal. Thousands of miles removed, thousands of years into the future from where he stands. God is, friends, like the best coach. He knows the exact time. He knows the right moment in the game and the right players to play. He knows your 
background. He knows your skills. He knows your situations. And until we can begin to see God as this incredibly compassionate being who is willing to use us, not go around us, we'll miss out on the greatness of his mercy and kindness because he wants to do work through us. This is what the New Testament confirms. I mean, it, t- it talks about salvation as being by grace and not by works so that no one could boast. Jonah certainly can't boast after this story, but neither can we when it comes to standing before God. There is no ground higher when it comes to grace. The playing field is level. There is no boasting. But even at that level playing field where God is the one whose grace is great and glorious, what are we to then do? We are to step into the good works that he's prepared for us. God desires to work through us, not go around us. So it's okay. If you feel reluctant, if you're worried about how things are gonna go, if you don't have all the answers, that doesn't mean you're not called. Doesn't mean God's not asking you. And we, family, need to learn to ask that question. Lord, what are you asking me to do here? Is there a way you want to work through me to see that happen? We'll stand in the line and tradition of Jonah if we do. All right, on to the next one. The third lesson that we need to learn when it comes to how God goes to work is clearly that the work is not about us, but it will change us. God's work is not about us, but it will change us. Look at um, chapter one, verse one, the beginning of the book. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. What's the purpose of the book? What is God trying to get done? Well, he's trying to get a message to Nineveh. This is a book about Nineveh. It bears the name Jonah, but this is a book about Nineveh. God wants to speak something to the Ninevites. Their evil ways, their violence, their oppression has come up before him, and he wants to say something about it. And he sends Jonah for that effect. This is a book about reaching Nineveh with a message. And it's interesting. If Jonah really took God's word for what it was in that moment and didn't know anything else about the the character of God, he would have said, great, right? Like Nineveh's gonna get what's coming to Nineveh. Like I'm gonna go and they're gonna get justice. But of course, look at the end of the book. Verse 10 and 11 of chapter four. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, see the parallel there? In which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. See the flip? God's concern for Nineveh. He's, he wants to call them to account for justice. And God's concern for Nineveh in the end. Jonah is concerned for a plant. And God's concerned for a city. This is a book about Nineveh. And God's work that, that he calls Jonah into is about Nineveh, not him. 
but it will change him. Jonah is a different man. I mean, you could argue that Jonah is the greatest story of personal transformation in the entirety of the Old Testament. It is fabulous, and you don't see it here, but you see it in light of the scriptures, right? I mean, if, if, you, just, if you read these four chapters and take in the epic story that they are, and you see the way in which he records his story for his present audience and then for future generations, listen, the Jonah that's in here that we read is not the Jonah that was there. The kind of sophistication, the kind of awareness of self, the kind of maturity it would take to write these painful things about yourself, to portray your own identity this way, your own ministry this way, is astounding. Like Jonah, the only explanation of this book for why it exists is that Jonah left Nineveh and the compassion got him. The compassion of God got him. And it worked upon him. And he took the story back. And he told the story in such a way that even though it was his story, God was at the center of it. Incredible change and transformation. And friends, that kind of change, that kind of discipleship doesn't happen just by sort of tinkering with a few things under the hood, changing the mechanics. It involves going below the waters. He goes to the deep. He has these circumstances in life that are difficult and they are used by God to change him profoundly. I wonder what circumstances are in your life right now. What water is there that God is saying, hey, I know it seems crazy, but you could come down here and perhaps wrestle with me in a way that you have never dared is possible, but my compassion is great enough to invite that kind of dialogue such that you might experience that kind of change. The invitation of Jonah is surely one for us to go to the depths because God is capable of changing us so that our story might sound forth something like Jonas. God's called us, family, to be about his work in the world. And don't get confused because Jonah is a preacher and I'm a preacher that this is a story for prophets or something like that. No, Jonah wrote this for God's people then. And it's a story for God's people now. A story of how we can contribute to God's work in the world in a meaningful way. And it will always mean, as we throw in to the adventure of doing God's work in the world and advancing his kingdom, it will always mean change for us. Somehow in God's greatness, he can have both the ends, Nineveh, and the means, Jonah, in his mind, expressing concern for both. It's wonderful. All right, family, last one. Last one. Lesson number four, Jonah shows us that God is the one who holds the true meaning of greatness. God is the one who holds the true meaning of greatness. The crazy thing for me is that Jonah is at the center of the story, but he's not the center of the story. And you kind of read this and wonder, as many throughout history have, like, what do we, who is Jonah? What do we make of him? Like, is he an anti, is he anti-prophet? 
Like, is he the exact opposite of what prophets are supposed to do, right? Prophets are supposed to go where God tells you to go, and Jonah runs away. (laughs) Prophets are supposed to say what God says to say, and Jonah, like, you know, five words is all you get. Like, is, what is, is Jonah that? Some would even say maybe Jonah is sort of like in the, the last of the prophets. Like, it sort of all wraps up from here on out because he, he does such a horrible job. Or is Jonah perhaps this sort of like foolish figure, right? I mean, there's, there's times when you look at him and you're like, dude, that's pathetic, right? You're crying over a plant. Like, what's going on? It's like, you, you can see Jonah and be like, what, is, he, is he a picture of what not to do in terms of folly, or perhaps you can see him as a comic figure, right? I mean, certainly there's points that make you want to laugh in this story. Like, a fish, really? Like, it eats him? And then when he starts praying all these sort of pious things about salvation belonging to God, then the fish spits him up and vomits him? Like, there's these moments of comedy. And not in sort of like the entertainment way that we might experience comedy, but like maybe in the old-fashioned way where comedy had like an effect. It kind of provoked something. But I think the best way to read Jonah is that he is a true prophet with a message. He has a message for us. And his message is one that's characterized by him as one in need of mercy, two people in need of mercy. Jonah goes to Nineveh, and they clearly need either justice or extreme mercy. And there, I think, is the clue to revealing God's greatness in this story. Look at um, this interesting passage. This is verse 3 of chapter 4. It says, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city. Hold on to those words. Exceedingly great. Maybe if you're reading the New International Version, this is the English Standard. It might say a very great city or a very big city. Hold on. Three days journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Now, this is fascinating from a, like a geeky scholar perspective because the word exceedingly appears in the book a number of times. And it's actually the Hebrew word gadol, which means great. And so in all the other places in the book where it says exceedingly, like exceeding fear, it's really saying great fear, like surpassing fear, much fear. But here you have a double up. You have exceedingly great city. And the interesting thing is the word for exceedingly here is Elohim, the word in the Hebrew Old Testament for God. So this is, some translations would say, this is a great city to God. But I think the emphasis is that it's great, great city. But the same word, Elohim, appears then again in the bottom of that verse, right? When they believe God. So it literally says that Jonah comes up to the God great city and then the city believes God. And what's going on here at the centerfold of the book is a definition of greatness, right? 
the Ninevites are incredibly great. They're a superpower in their day. They're formidable. They're violent and oppressive. And their city is great. But the greatest city that Jonah could think of in the span of a verse after a call for repentance folds to the great Elohim. There is something about God that is far greater. And Jonah is a story 17 times in this book. Great, Gadol. The wind is great, the fear is great, the storm is great, the, 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 the city, the nobles in the city are great. But right at the center, Elohim, God is the great one. And I think he is the great one in Jonah because of the things that Jonah's story holds together. You see from the first verse a message of judgment, and you see from the last verse a plea for mercy and compassion. Now, in our minds, those are things that are polarizing, working against one another, and don't seem to fit. I'm working on a, a sign. Hopefully, you'll see it next week. It didn't quite come from the printer for the lobby out there. And I was thinking about using some magnets for a piece of it. Um, and so I got these magnets. And magnets are interesting, right? They're kind of like mysterious. They're just like forces and stuff. Um, if you read Amazon, like don't read the reviews because like they're dangerous. Like all these, like, and the, like the disclaimers on them, like I mean, it's definitely keep them away from kids. But like it basically is like don't, don't mess with these things. These, you know, I don't even know how you say the word but they're these, the powerful magnets. And uh, I think Jonah is a story for us where magnets are a good metaphor, meaning he's begging us to ask the question, how should we think about God? And if we think about God as these competing forces, sort of polarized, but God's strong enough or great enough to hold them together, both justice and mercy, then we've missed it. God is not a creator at conflict within himself, but God has an incredibly mysterious way of holding the forces of both justice and compassion forward. Jonah shows us this. And this way, Jonah also shows us Jesus. There's a reason Jesus is the one who says, I am the greater Jonah. Because Jesus' message about justice and about mercy in the midst of a world full of evil where there is real need for justice. Jonah's messed up that justice doesn't come upon these violent and wicked Ninevites. But he's also aware now as he writes this story for us to reflect upon of his own need and everyone's need for the great compassion of God. And somehow God would find a way one day, and he did, in the Lord Jesus, to show the full force of his justice and his mercy together with the most powerful effect that has produced a kind of spiritual renewal, a revolution, you would even say, that's lasted 2,000 years and still is the dominant most widely held religious conviction in the world. The cross of Christ at the center where justice and mercy meet. 
the due punishment fit for sin on Jesus and what we don't deserve at all given to us, mercy. Jonah speaks as a true prophet. And he speaks some lessons that we need to learn, especially if we're gonna be about the work of God in the world. And family, I want us to be. Together we're in this moving forward the work of God through this local church, in this city, in these neighborhoods. And we need to learn and hear from Jonah. You know, we have an odd saying at our house, um, take it or leave it. Um, you're welcome to steal it from us. But at, at mealtime, um, we've learned over a few years that um, somehow when you put food on the table, toddlers have a way of saying pretty quickly they don't like it. <laughs> like they one bite and I don't like that. And so we sort of just like scratched that out of our house. We're like, no, you can't say that, all right? Not, on, not an option. Um, like, I mean, we, I don't know how, how long it took me to make the meal, like, but if we put fresh food on the table, like, you don't get to say, I don't like that and spit it out. You get to say, I'm still learning that. Because even all the studies would say, you actually need a number of times to try a food in order to learn it and to sort of gain access to enjoy it, right? So I'm still learning that is the phrase that we encourage our kids to say. And when it comes to the, the meal of Jonah, when it comes to the lessons in this book, the ones about God's justice, the ones about God's mercy, the ones about God using us, not going around us, the ones about God being primary and us being his creature, it's okay for you to say, I'm still learning that. This is a place where you can do that. It's not one where you have to stomach those and then smile. You can say, I'm still learning that. And guess what? For some of these, me too. Me too. Let's pray and ask that God would help us enjoy the richness of his justice and his compassion. God, thank you for your word, for Jonah. Um, he's been a good friend to me over the last few months and even the last few years in some of my own moments of descent, my own below the water moments. And I thank you for the way he speaks truly of your justice. You will hold us to account if we do not have Jesus stand in our place. So thank you for the way that Jonah holds forth these forces of justice and mercy. Thank you for the way that he beckons us into the game, saying, God is great, but you are needed because God wants to work through you. And I pray even coming out of this morning that we would have eyes to see opportunity to engage in your work, to move forward your kingdom, to spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And as we respond and celebrate this morning as we physically, for those who believe in you, digest a bit of bread and a bit of grape juice, would you help us learn to stomach and even enjoy more of your justice, your compassion, more of your greatness. In Jesus' name we pray. We pray. Amen.